Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave. We're three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who've inspired us over the years. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com. If you're going to buy stuff on Amazon anyway, it would be cool if you would first click on the Amazon link on the Rocktail Hour homepage, and Amazon will kick a few bucks back to the Rocktail Hour to help fund these free podcasts. Today, Dave is going to bring us the story behind Sleep Now in the Fire by Rage Against the Machine. Thanks, Tim. I wanted to start off this Rocktail Hour by uh, giving a shout out to Rocktail listener John. I want to give you a big thank you for recommending this Rage song. I have been actually researching for a couple of months now different Rage songs that I wanted to include on a Rocktail Hour because I think they need to be treated here. They're just a, they're such an interesting band and so unique. But I've had a tough time narrowing it down. And so John had emailed the Rocktail Hour and requested this song. And the more I looked into it, I said, man, I can't believe I didn't figure this one out on my own. So thank you, John, for the recommendation. And this one goes for you. This is to you. Um, are, are either of you guys, do either of you guys consider yourselves fans of Rage Against the Machine? Yeah, I like them. Uh, although a, a, a lot of their lyrics are a little bit tough for me. So I actually <laughs> loved it uh, when they were playing with Audio Slave. Loved uh, when they played with Chris Cornell on Audio Slave. Yeah, so after Rage Against the Machine broke up, um, Zach De La Rocha, the singer who we'll talk about, um, left and they had a lot of differences, but uh, they partnered with Chris Cornell. And the, the Audio Slave music is phenomenal. It's another band that I'm kind of, it's on my regret list for never having seen live. I really would like to have seen Audio Slave. Uh, Tim, would you consider yourself a Rage fan? I've never heard of Rage Against the Machine until today. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So, well, here's the thing. Rage you gotta, is. Got to remember, I'm the one that does the Beatles, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Rage is probably a little bit more of a uh, an acquired taste by by some people's standards. You'd say I acquired a taste for Rage a long time ago. I love them. I'm a, a diehard fan. Um, so I have, and I'll tell you, it's kind of it's it's really black and white with these guys. I think. The fans that I know, the, the Rage Against the Machine fans that I know are really hardcore fans. Their their music, as you kind of alluded to, or sorry, their lyrics are laced with profanity. And I have this kid that I knew in high school who, I, actually, not when I was in high school, but when he was in high school, this was probably like five years ago. Um, he was such a huge fan of Rage Against the Machine, and all of his friends were fans of Rage Against the Machine, but their parents wouldn't let him listen to the albums because they are so profane. This kid, whose parents did allow him to listen to the albums, he actually went through every single Rage song that had a bad word in it, and he spliced it using an audio <laughs> audio software, and he spliced it in, spliced a little piece of the song in over the cuss word, wow. so he could have kind of a rated, I'd call it a rated, rated PG thirteen version of all the Rage Against the Machine songs, and this proliferated amongst all of his group of friends. But it shows you how painstakingly dedicated he was to rage against the machine for his friends and then he invented napster yeah <laughs> and then later became a billionaire from facebook right <laughs> all right um so anyway there's just uh, a, a lot of really diehard fans out there i'd consider myself one of them um you know some of the songs he couldn't really fully edit like killing in the name which is if you know that rage song it has 17 iterations of the f word in it and uh, it's just so littered with profanity that that one's probably not even worth editing. Interestingly, on that song, it was actually accidentally 
played and aired on the BBC. (laughs) (laughs) And whoever the people were that were responsible for that got a massive whipping for it. Because, I mean, that song going over public airwaves would be, if I could list like, probably 10 songs that should never be played never be played on public airwaves that'd be number one just because of how profane it is be major fines from the fcc in uh, the united states yeah if it had happened here you bet all right so let's so talk you a- can see janet jackson's boob yeah <laughs> i think they got fined for that too yeah. if that gives you any comfort <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the band. Um, I first heard of Rage Against the Machine when I was living in San Francisco in the early 90s, and I remember a girl just going on and on to her friend, and I just overheard a conversation about this singer and how much energy and charisma he had, She's charisma he had, how she had never seen anything like it, and I said, well, i got to figure out who this band is, so I got the album, and I was immediately entranced. I mean, they're a little bit of Black Sabbath, they're a little bit of Beastie Boys, they're a little bit of um, you know, just really heavy kind of metal rap. Um, but their riff-based brand of very unique rock and roll that also has like a lot of punk elements in it immediately just you know resonated with me. So the band is a four-piece comprised of vocalist Zach De La Rocha, bassist Tom Comerford, guitarist Tom Morello, who's uh, probably in my top five of heavy, heavy metal guitar players, um, and drummer Brad Wilk. And Brad Wilk, by the way, just played on Black Sabbath's kind of uh, latest studio album. Oh, cool. Uh, for whatever reason, Black Sabbath's uh, drummer Bill Ward, and I can't remember why, he didn't play on the album. So they recruited uh, Brad Wilk from Rage to, to play on that. So cool opportunity for him. Uh, the band is one of the things that they're really well known for are their extreme, uh, what I would consider extreme, leftist political views, which permeate their music. Um, hence the name of the band, Rage Against the Machine. That's the whole genesis behind the band. So it was, the band was started when the guitar player Tom Morello was looking to put together a band, and he saw Zach De La Rocha freestyle rapping at an L.A. nightclub, and he hit him up to be in the new band, and then they discovered that they were kind of political soulmates. And so they took the name of the band from a song that Zach De La Rocha had written for a punk band that he was currently in, and then they uh, currently and then they went on and drafted the other players. Um, Morello knew Wilk from a previous band, who was the the drummer, and then Zach De La Rocha drafted Comerford on bass, who was a childhood friend. So anyway, that launched the band. They were kind of a political band to start with, and have remained so ever since uh, until they broke up. So. A um, little bit about their commercial success. Their first two albums, which was the self-titled Rage Against the Machine and their second one, Evil Empire, they quickly went triple platinum. And their third album, The Battle of Los Angeles, of which Sleep Now in the Fire is the song, um, that went double platinum. So they enjoyed immediate and enormous success, um, all while raging against the capital capitalist machine that's facilitating all their success. <laughs> Right. So it's an interesting dichotomy that they find themselves in. And I noticed that they haven't been donating their money to, uh, you know, the Occupy groups, have they? Well, interestingly, um, they did do one of their tours. And I think in the late 90s, they donated 100 percent of the concert proceeds to various left leaning social causes. Right. So they have done that. They put their money where their mouth is and props to them. But. The fact of the matter is they're multimillionaires because they've had such enormous commercial success. And they're, they've built all of that off railing against 
other multimillionaires. So it puts them in this interesting conundrum. And they've even had other bands. There's another punk band, I, I guess, Infectious, called Infectious Grooves. I guess you'd call them a punk band. But um, they actually wrote a parody song of one of Rage's songs, basically ripping on them, saying, hey, who do you guys think you are? A bunch of multimillionaires <laughs> trying to rail against the machine. Like You are there. the 1%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they literally are in the 1% in the strict, strictly definitionally. So. Well, and I and I always have a hard time. I I kind of laugh at people that that like to uh, continue having this image. I mean, what do they have to be enraged about at this point? You know, they have everything they want. They certainly aren't lacking in anything. So you can still be enraged at the system. Yeah. Okay. Great. But they are part of the system. The no, system is not what... the political system. You could be angry at the political. system. Yeah. Whatever. It's all the system. They are the man at this point, yeah. right? So. Well, I think that's a good point. So not to diverge too much from rage, but... Um, they need to be miffed at the machine at this point. So check this out. So, yeah. <laughs> miffed at the yeah. machine. Miffed, miffed Slightly at the machine. annoyed at the machine. Slightly annoyed at the machine, although it's really treating me well. Peeved. Peeved at the yeah. machine. Yeah, peeved at the there machine. That's great. So um, uh, Metallica's, their latest album called Death Magnetic, it was kind of a return to kind of what they would say was their roots. And I listened to that album, and while I really liked the album, I saw I went to the concert, the whole nine yards. The 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 inconsistency, or I guess the problem I had with it, is contrasting it with their earlier work. You know, they were dealing with a ton of like m emotional and childhood problems, and they were like pissed when they wrote their early stuff. And at some point in time, I mean, these guys are worth so many, you know, tens or hundreds of. I don't know how much these guys are worth, but they're worth a ton of money. How really genuinely pissed can you be? And so when Metallica came out with the Death Magnetic album, one of the things I kind of saw in that album was like, they're trying to resurrect a little bit of that anger, but it seemed a little bit feigned to me. Because like you said, Tim, how, how angry can you be when the system has just treated you so well? Butthurt at the machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what uh, Tom Morello had to say in response to this on this very issue when people were kind of ripping on him for being uh, hypocritical. He said this, quote, when you live in a capitalistic society, the currency of the dissemination of information goes through capitalistic channels. Would Noam Chomsky object to his works being sold at Barnes and Noble? No, because that's where people buy their books. We're not interested in preaching to just the converted. It's great to play abandoned squats run by anarchists, but it's also great to be able to reach people with a revolutionary message, people from Granada Hills to Stuttgart. So that's his attempt to respond to it. But at the end of the day, these guys live in mansions. Yeah. I wonder so. how they would feel about music piracy, for example. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they would be. I'm sure they would rage against music piracy. <laughs> Metallica being first in line for that. Yeah, absolutely. Lars Ulrich was, he, he yeah. pissed off a lot of their fans. Yeah. And probably rightfully so. It's like, give me a break, man. We turned you into multi-gazillionaires and we're sharing some files and you're going to go and, nuts And hence it. they become the man. And that's right. exactly my point. They become the machine. Yeah. It's Animal Farm, right? All right. So let's talk about how the this band has been enveloped in controversy. There's been a couple of interesting things that's, that's happened to them along the way. So in April 1996, they were invited to play on Saturday Night Live. And their first song that they played, you know how on Saturday Night Live, they get two songs, each band, one kind of in the beginning and the one toward the end. The first song that they played was Bulls on Parade, one of my top favorite Rage songs, Great song. which, by the way, anytime I want to test out a new stereo system, Bulls on Parade is my deal. 
It's perfect. <laughs> you can really test the bass, the drums, the whole nine yards. It's great. But anyway, um, on the episode that night, Steve Forbes, who was then the Republican presidential candidate, was also on the show that night. So when it came time for Rage to play their second song, they took American flags and hung them upside down on their amplifiers. In an attempt to protest, you've got a conservative Republican candidate on the show. And Saturday Night Live, although they, they've kind of probably historically been poking a little more left-leaning and they kind of poke fun at a lot of different things, they wouldn't let them play the second song. So Rage was kind of censored even by Saturday Night Live. Wow. They wouldn't let them go on TV with American flags hung upside down. Because once again, Saturday Night Live and Lorne Michaels knows where their bread is buttered. That's exactly right. You know, and bottom line is, is you can be you can be the angry young man at some point, but at some point, Lorne Michaels became a very rich person and doesn't want anything to mess with that. That's right. The machine's working for him. Yep. Yep. Um, here's another interesting uh, controversy that they were embroiled in. Um, in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks, uh, Clear Channel, which... Uh, owns like 1,200 radio stations across the country, right? They're the biggest purveyor of radio. They sent out what's come to be known as the 2001 Clear Channel Memorandum. And this was a communication that went out to all of their 1,200 radio stations right after the events of 9-11 with guidance to them, not banning songs, but guidance saying, hey, these are songs that we feel are lyrically questionable in light of this national tragedy that has just happened. American Pie was one of them. You couldn't sing it because of the Buddy Holly reference. Dying in a plane crash. Dying in a plane crash. Interestingly, Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind was on one of them. And that one, I thought, man, you're kind of stretching there. But they were worried about offending people in the wake of a national tragedy. Well, interestingly, this was a list of 165 songs. <laughs> the list included 100% of Rage Against the Machine's catalog. <laughs> funny. Literally every song that Rage had ever produced was on the list. They were the only band. Okay, so these guys have a... And, and by the way, when this kind of stuff happens, they're going home and licking their chops. I'll guarantee you. All right, hey, our message is working. We're trying to piss off the man, and it's working. Well, I think it was I, – I don't want to digress from this talking about the song or the band, but I think that had to do a lot more with – a lot more than just did it have content that might have related or, or caused people to think about 9-11. I think a lot of it too was let's not play anything that's uh, real angry or overly emotional. There was a lot of that going on at the time, so you're, you know, you're not playing – some of Black Sabbath songs, for example. So yeah, even on the Saturday Night Live front, as it related to 9-11, Saturday Night Live, if you remember, went off air. And they didn't even air any new episodes for a number of weeks. And then when they finally did go back on, they had Mayor Giuliani come on Saturday Night Live. They had a whole uh, regiment of firefighters and policemen. And it started with Lauren Michaels asking Mayor Giuliani, hey, is it okay for us to be funny again? You know, because the whole entire nation was in a state of deep mourning, and rightfully so. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the entire country reacted in such a significant way because of the, the depth of that tragedy. Giuliani's response was funny, too. He said, have you ever been funny? Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well done. You know, you may not like Giuliani's politics, but he was a hero there for about three months. I mean, a real American hero, you know, nothing, I mean, had nothing to do with his politics or the way he ran the city. It just, he, he was a major part of that city being able to heal. And a, and a great example uh, that day of walking through the, the buildings and the, and the city and just taking charge and, you know, trying to be positive. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, yeah, like like their politics or not, even when George Bush got up on top of the rubble and said, hey, the people that did this to our country, they're going to hear our voices now. And that gave me goosebumps. Mm-hmm. If there was anything that if you could say there was anything that good that came out of 9-11 is it really unified everybody. Politics and party didn't matter yeah, for, for at a least a, a period of time. And it was kind of nice and refreshing to see. All right. So let's move on to the song Sleep Now in the Fire. So the song starts with this really kind of heavy, which all their songs are heavy, but this really good swinging guitar riff that comes in with a really thick and heavy bass and drum accompaniment behind it. And Tom Morello, the guitar player, said this about the guitar riff. He said, quote, I couldn't help but envision a huge festival audience jumping up and down to this one. And in other words, that was kind of the purpose for why he wrote is like, we played all these huge festivals. I want to write a riff that's going to get everybody jumping. Right, so the quote continues, he says, It has that kind of feel. The song really took shape when we married the main guitar riff to a very 70s rolling bass line with a dark lava lamp incense burning groovy vibe. <laughs> and so you'll, you'll, you'll see that. And, and when you listen to the song, the, the bass and the drums and the interplay between them is phenomenal. He even lays off the guitar just so they can kind of be front and center stage. Um, so he goes on to quote, he says, it reminds me of a little group from the early 70s called the Jimmy Caster Bunch. Big afros, big bass lines, the whole nine yards. So um, I, I did a little YouTube search on the Jimmy Caster Bunch. Treat yourself to five minutes of the Jimmy Caster Bunch. It's classic, <laughs> great soul 70s music. And like he says, big bass, big afros. It's cool. So anyway, they're really good at fusing metal and rap and even 70s type music and all their songs. So it's cool stuff. Um, the single Sleep Now in the Fire was released in 1999. And the cover is a picture of an oversized silver dollar coupled with a faceless woman clad in lingerie and an enormous bomb exploding in the background. So kind of symbols of greed and wanton appetites and things like that. The lyrics, I think, are really interesting. Um, it's written in the first person, and the narrator is the embodiment of greed, dominion, and someone having this divinely inspired but bloodthirsty lust for power. So when Zach De La Rocha, who I think is the principal lyric writer, he's, he's speaking in the third person here, or sorry, the first person here, and he's he is the greedy, dominion-obsessed guy. Here's what Here's how the song opens. It says... The world is my expense, the cost of my desire. Jesus blessed me with its future, and I protect it with fire. So he feels God entitled him to the riches of the world, and he's going to protect it and his worldly greed with fire. He'll burn you down if you try and infringe on it. So he says, quote, So raise your fists and march around. Just don't take what you need. I'll jail and bury those committed and smother the rest in greed. Crawl with me into tomorrow. I'll drag you to your grave. I'm deep inside your children. They'll betray you in my name. So again, talking about the greed that materialism brings and how it just becomes all-encompassing, right, and fighting against it. Later in the song, he goes into a rant against warmongers and imperialism while kind of reveling in, in his kind of metaphorical identity. And this is what he says. I am the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria you know, referencing the imperialism of the Spaniards, Um, the noose and the rapist, the fields overseer, the agents of orange, the priests of Hiroshima, the cost of my desire, sleep now in the fire. So he's kind of all these things that have oppressed and warmongered and destroyed other people. And he's, I don't care. I'm going to protect my own. You sit in the fire and eat it. That's chilling. 
it is chilling and it kind of yeah. almost gives me goosebumps when i read it so it's they're heavy lyrics now one thing i wanted to digress just a little bit and talk about their first album cover okay so rage came out in the early 90s i think their first album came out in 91 and rage against the machine was their whole deal right we talked about their political left leanings their first album cover was a famous picture that won a pulitzer prize from 1963 and it's of a monk whose name i hope i'm pronouncing this right it was a monk in vietnam his name was thick quang dunk or duck and he was a Buddhist monk born in 1897, and he was protesting the persecution and religious inequality of Buddhists in South Vietnam at the time in the early 60s. And a lot of things had happened to them, and there was a lot of unrest. And what, I guess what the Buddhists felt at the time is that they had this plight that no one was paying attention to. So what this monk did, uh, Thich Quang Duc, is he went to the middle of a crowded intersection in Saigon and set himself on fire. And you guys might have heard of this, but the story behind it is really chilling. Um, so what happened is this. There was a peaceful procession of people protesting the, the treatment of the Buddhist monks. And he and two other monks emerged from a car in the middle of this peace march right outside the Cambodian embassy. One of the monks pulled out a cushion from the car, laid it in the middle of this busy intersection. Thich Quang Duc sits calmly on this cushion in the lotus meditative state, while another monk goes in the back of the car and pulls out a five-gallon container of gasoline and proceeds to pour it all over this monk sitting on the cushion. Thich Quang Duc then takes out a match and just drops it on himself and sets himself ablaze in front of everybody. Unbelievable. It was just a harrowing moment. They had told the press that this was going to happen. They tried to leak it to in order to invite press coverage. But only two people came and actually covered it. One of them was Malcolm Brown from the Associated Press, who, who shot the picture, which later won a Pulitzer Prize, as I had mentioned. Um, that became the cover of Rage's first album. And man, what an appropriate cover for a band like Rage, right? And the other was a guy named David um, Halberstam from the New York Times. Now, he was there and saw this, and he described the scene as such. He said, quote, flames were coming from a human being. His body was slowly withering and shriveling up, his head blackening and charring. In the air was the smell of burning human flesh. Human beings burned surprisingly quickly. Behind me, I could hear the sobbing of the Vietnamese who were now gathering. I was too shocked to cry, too confused to take notes or ask questions, too bewildered to even think. As he burned and never moved a muscle, never uttered a sound, his outward composure in sharp contrast to the wailing people around him. So, wow. I mean, really just heavy, heavy stuff here. But that was what was so telling about this is that he was burning to death in utter silence and calm while chaos ensued around him. Um, so anyway, that's a political statement that is about as heavy of a political statement as anyone could make. Right. OK, so let me ask you the question. Mm -hmm. OK, I don't, I don't want to get too heavy here on a, in our podcast. We already are. So let's but delve is in it, even deeper. Is it appropriate to to put that on 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 the cover of your profane uh, rock and roll album? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. And especially especially as you describe the uh, the peace and the serenity of the man who was dying, who was literally giving up his life in order to stand up for something that he wholly believed in, when in contrast to a band who has essentially sold their soul to the to the very uh, machine that they're raging against, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I don't I don't want to be too critical, but I mean. I hate to say it, but they, they say their rage against the machine and they're fighting against the man and the system. 
but really they are part of the so-called 1% and uh, they're very successful and they're very prolific and they make a whole lot of money doing something uh, that they say they feel very strongly about. So uh, I think that's an interesting contrast and to say it's an appropriate cover uh, for the album, I don't know that I agree with the idea of it being appropriate. It's certainly a paradox that's really kind of underlying this entire podcast, right? The one thing I will say, though, um, well, I'll say two things to that. One, this was the cover of their very first album, and this was before, and this album was released before they had widespread commercial success. So that's kind of one thing. But two, and maybe even more importantly, I think the only people that could appropriately answer that question are the people that are more directly tied to this monk, his family, and people that are involved in that movement. Did they take this as like, hey, you know what? Here's Rage Against the Machine. They're actually putting it on their album cover. We did this because we wanted to draw attention to our plight. Maybe it was a positive thing for them. If it weren't a positive thing for them and they're saying, hey, you know, you're utilizing a sacred thing for us, then I think it's entirely inappropriate that the band would choose to do this. I think in those situations, just like 9-11, whatever the families of the 9-11 victims want, they get and that's how I feel about it. So I, I guess you'd have to ask that question to the people more directly tied to this, in my opinion. Makes me feel like if they would even know. I guess it makes me wonder if they would yeah. even know that the picture was used in the album cover. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, but, you know, taking the, all of that aside, you know, you have somebody who's who's totally committed to an idea to the point that he would be willing to give up his life in order to promote um, awareness of the issue. And and then to, to, you, I think what you're saying when you put that person on your album cover is you're, you're somewhat equating yourself to that kind of a person. Now, was it their debut album? Absolutely. But as they've been prolific over the years and, they and you know, look, you can do whatever you want. You know, I may listen to you or I may not based on your, uh, on the content of your songs. But to, you know, to use that person as a way to further your career, you know, I can't answer that, but I think it's a question that has to be asked. Is it appropriate and and is it a little pretentious to say, you know, that, that you equate yourself with this person and their plight? I, th- I think it's different. Exactly. Something so heavy and so meaningful and so um, – words almost escape me to kind of describe yeah. what this guy did. And then taking something like a rock album – they're two very different levels. So putting them on the same level, you you run the risk of really kind of blaspheming the intent of the original act. And at the end of the day, I'm sorry, at the end of the day, and this doesn't just include Rage Against the Machine, it includes any entertainer, right? That sort of forgets that they're an entertainer. Right. Right. Or an artist. You know, we've talked about being an entertainer or an artist. Right. So you've got people who are entertainers or artists or both. How much influence do they have and how much difference have they made in the world? You know, how much difference is Rage Against the Machine made? And I don't know that I have that answer, but I, I don't think they're, I don't think they're universe changing, uh, you know, anything uh, through their music or their performances or anything like that. They're just a great band, right? They'd probably disagree with you, but that's um, that's because they have an, their own view of who they are. Well, sure. But, I mean, that's like Sean Penn being friends with uh, Hugo Chavez, right? I right, mean, right. Yeah. I mean, Sean Penn thinks that you know he matters and he's changed the entire world, but at the end of the day... He's an entertainer. He's an entertainer who's made friends with a dictator. You know what I'm saying? That so I'm not true. trying to be mean to Rage Against the Machine, but I, I think personally I feel like that you know artists or entertainers have, a, have an uphill battle to fight if they think that they're going to change the world. I admire them for trying to do so. Sure. You know, if, yeah. I had the, if I had that pulpit and that talent, I would certainly do it. Sure. Well, let's... I think you, you, I, I'll, I'll bet that there are uh, numerous artists that have changed the world 
I mean, if you think back to the 60s, you know, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, musicians were out in the front of sure. a lot of those things. So that actually is a good lead back into the finishing of this uh, story of Thich Quang Duc, this monk that set himself on fire. Because let's talk about how he did change the world. The photo that is on their cover of their album went, for the time, viral. If it could go viral in 1963, it made its way around the world in the popular press very quickly. So President Kennedy got, Kennedy got word of it. And there was a lot of international pressure that was brought upon the South Vietnamese government to reform. And the reform promises were made, but never followed through and broken. In fact, what happened is the South Vietnamese government started to further oppress them because now you had this groundswell of, of movement against them. So it led to a lot of government raids against Buddhist pagodas in which they killed others. And one of the things that's interesting is this monk, after he was burned, his heart was still somewhat intact, although his body was charred. And so his fellow monks took his heart out of his body. They cremated, fully cremated the rest of his body, and they kept his heart in a container and put it in one of the pagodas as a symbol of their movement. Wow. The mm. government raided the pagoda, killed people, stole this monk's heart, and took it from them, basically saying, we're taking your symbol. Well, this happened in... Uh, uh, it was in early 1963 that he set himself on fire. Later that year, in November, there was a military coup against the leader of the government in which he was assassinated. So whatever his intent was, he did affect change in the South Vietnamese government, which I thought was interesting. So that's a really heavy story. Um, it's not maybe... I made a girl steal my heart in ninth grade. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tim. We needed someone to lighten this thing up a little bit, right? <laughs> So anyway, let's uh, go back to the Rage album. You know, I think just in light of the song Sleep Now in the Fire, I thought it was probably relevant to at least talk about that. Just for nothing else, then it's a fascinating story about the depth and the level of human commitment to a cause outside of themselves. I think it was, it was pretty heavy. And, um, and it's an interesting insight to the way that they see themselves. Yeah. You know, and fair enough if they think that they're making a change and great. I mean, at least good for them for trying, right? Right. You know, I certainly don't know enough about them to know what their politics are or not. So I don't know that I agree or disagree with them. But, you know, you're right. I mean, people should try. Yeah, and I was more talking about the monks, by the way, which another, sorry, I keep going back to this. It's interesting when they did this, when the, when the monk burned himself, he had another monk lobbying to take his place. But because this monk, the Quang Duck, had seniority in the monk world, he said, nope, you're not allowed to. I'm taking it. They were competing for the opportunity to burn themselves to draw attention to their cause. So, I mean, the level of dedication, believing that your cause is more important than your life and then dying a horrific death is, is pretty telling. Um, so anyway, back to the album and back to the song. The song, Sleep Now in the Fire, was interesting. Uh, there was a video for the song that was directed by uh, Michael Moore, who's a perfect match for these guys politically. <laughs> and um, he shot the band setting up and playing the song live in front of the New York Stock Exchange. And an enormous crowd gathered to watch, resulting in a closing of the doors of the exchange. And so, you know, it's perfect for them to go put their finger up in the air at the man in front of the <laughs> New York Stock Exchange. But I, what I'd like to know is what their personal portfolios looked like at that first time. Because I'll guarantee you, well, they had enough money to have it invested in the New York Stock Exchange. Don't you find it a little ironic that they go out and hire somebody like Michael Moore? I mean, it's just, it, it just seems almost so contradictory to me. Yeah, we're to gonna... me, it seems like overly predictable. Right. Really? Well, yeah, fair enough. Little... Predictable, but even a little contradictory because I'm Michael Moore is another one of those people that probably not successful on the level as, as the band is, but he's been successful in his own right. And, you know, I mean, really? 
Oh well, they they well, suffer. Now, let me just make a comment here, Tim. In in your in your attitude toward this, you're inferring that anybody who has left leaning politics isn't entitled to make money based on their their art and their talent. That's not what I'm inferring at all. I'm well, saying what it sounds like. I'm saying straight out that if you're going to rail against people who have money, if you're going to rail against capitalism itself, you should not be someone who embraces it personally for your own success, so, which clearly they have. So what do you do? Is, is capitalism good or is it bad? Because if it's, if it's bad, don't take part in it. It's the abuse. That to me. It's the abuse of capitalism that's bad. If capitalism is bad, don't take part in it. Put your money where your mouth is, right? And and if you're if you're going to say that capitalism isn't bad, then don't personally benefit at such a level from it. You mean if you're if you're going to say that capitalism is bad, right? Yeah, exactly. Then don't personally, yeah, don't personally benefit from it, and especially at the level that these people are. So what level? What level is acceptable? Is it okay for them to make a hundred thousand dollars a year railing against the the man? I think anybody should a million? be able. I, sh- I think anybody million? should be able to to live comfortably one way or the other. But look, I'm saying don't mock something and then turn around and be a be a major part of it because clearly a band as successful as Rage Against the Machine is in the throat of capitalism and so be really careful about biting the hand that feeds you and and maybe they don't care if they bite the hand that feeds them but it, it in my mind it makes them look like hypocrites a little bit how angry can you be it goes back to my son said the other day and I think that this was was really um, a telling thing we went to a basketball game and and these folks are being paid a lot of money to basically play right? And I'm not talking about play a game, but to just play. I mean, they're doing something that all little boys dream of, right? Okay. And these, and these guys just flat out gave up. I mean, there was a certain point that if you went and watched the replay of the game, you would see, literally see the time when they all said, we don't want to play anymore. And my son was mad. He says, you know, I'm, and we had been given these tickets. He said, I would think all of these people that had paid money to come and see them play a game would be really angry because they're basically millionaires and they're refusing to play because they're tired or they're mad or they're whatever. And he says, and to me, that's just like all of these really, really rich people who get involved in drugs. He says, I mean, how mad and upset and miserable can your life be when you have everything you want, right? And I'm sure these folks now have everything they want. So how are they a spokesperson for anyone who who doesn't have enough and and that's to me what maybe they were at one time but it's it's very hard for me to to see how anybody can continue claiming to have that when they are the 1% essentially and i i'm using that term a little facetiously because you know of recent events but it seems a little hypocritical well, just because they become successful doesn't mean that they lack the ability to empathize with those of us that aren't in the 1%. And that doesn't mean that they also don't hold the same political attitudes that they had before. Just because they benefited from the system doesn't mean that they can't think that the system is wrong or messed up. They're winners, but that doesn't mean that that they still can't hate the game, even though they win it. Okay, that's a great theory, but I disagree. Well, to bring it back to music, the first time I heard Bob Dylan's uh, Satisfied Mind, I don't know if you guys know that song, my first reaction was, you know what? I want to go out and make millions of dollars in any way, shape, and form I can, so then I can go write a song about how I don't really need money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, everybody that writes these songs about it, they're they're sitting in the lap of luxury, which is an interesting thing, but... 
Um, I think there's a lot of contradictions in here that are meaty topics for further discussion, but let's ju- let's wrap it up. Let's get back into the tune. And uh, just one other closing note I wanted to make on this song. This song is Tom Morello's, one of his favorite Rage songs. And I'm, I'm referencing Tom Morello a lot because I think he's a really unique and interesting guitar player. But his guitar solo is so odd and creative that it's worth mentioning in this tune. And it closes the song out. He doesn't play any notes on his guitar. He doesn't touch his fretboard on it. What he's doing is feeding, is is getting the feedback between his guitar and his amp. He has his right, he has his left hand on the toggle switch, which is going back and forth between his pickups. He has one of the pickups on, one of the pickups off. He's flicking that back and forth. And his other hand on his whammy bar that's basically changing the pitch of the feedback coming out of his amp. Wow. And that's what this noise is. And it's this really kind of strange high-pitched guitar solo that's kind of going all over the place. And that's all it is. He never plays one note. It's all just feedback. But listen to it closely, and it's very cool. The last thing about it that's kind of an interesting side note, musically speaking, is he was using this old vintage distortion pedal for his guitar called a tone bender. And he noticed that when he would not be playing, but the distortion pedal was on, it was acting as a transistor radio. And it was picking up a very clear signal from a local Korean radio station. <laughs> oh, funny. So, wow. at, so at the very end of the song, you'll hear this like three second little gap and it's not a sample. It's actually the sound of a Korean radio station playing, going through the distortion pedal through his amp and you'll hear a little snippet of it and then it ends. Hmm. So just another awesome. interesting musical tidbit and it just shows you how creative and, and interesting these guys are from a musical perspective. So that is Sleep Now in the Fire by Rage Against the Machine. Well, thanks, Dave. Well, you can listen to a clip from this song on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong or if you have an interesting rocktail idea of your own. If you think we're lame, well, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. And until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. Rock on.